There's a very <coughs> ancient teaching story from India. That there was a <coughs> king who was, in addition to being a king, uh, was a highly awakened yogi. And someone wanted to learn that. How could a person be a person of action, a ruler, and also be a yogi? highly awakened yogi. So this person went to the king in the palace and told me he'd like to study with him and learn what he knows. And the king said, okay, put this pot of hot oil on your head, go through every room of the palace without spilling one drop, and then make your way and come back here. So this <clears throat> eager student did that went to every room in the palace, balancing this bowl of hot oil on his head, came back proudly to the king and said, here I am, haven't spilled a drop. So then the king said, can you tell me what was going on in the palace, like secret plots to overthrow me, who's having an affair with who, what's going on, some gossip, some discontent, what's the latest news going on in the palace, I don't really know. And the person said, gee, I, I can't tell you that. I was so concentrated on not spilling oil, I didn't notice any of that. And he said, okay, now go through the palace again, every room, don't spill any oil, and when you come back, be able to tell me the story of what's going on there. Um, it's <clears throat> what Michael and I are teaching. If you want to get a little bit more technical, it's shamatha vipassana calming the mind, steadying it, putting it in a condition so that it can learn. The learning comes from seeing. Liberation and insight meditation, the name itself tells you what it is. Seeing into, deep seeing is what frees us. It's the seeing, and at the beginning it may seem like the seeing leads to understanding, which it does, but when the seeing gets very, very clear, the seeing is the understanding. There's no separation. And so, <clears throat> we, there are many ways to accomplish this so that we can not only have a steady mind, but make our way in the world and be able to function in the world. Um, <clears throat> as far as I can see, we're all lay people here. We have lives. Uh, we're not going to spend most of our life on the cushion, even if we were monks or nuns, usually they don't. Uh, so, <clears throat> what have we been doing so far? Uh, and how does it connect with what the, the Buddha has been teaching? I would say to really begin the path of Dharma practice is to turn over a new leaf in life right now You've already done that by coming here. Uh, and some of you who've been coming for quite a while, years, may say, well, yeah, I've done that. I'm very committed. Um, it's something that's ongoing. Otherwise, you get entrenched in a nice, cozy place in practice. And it becomes stagnant. And eventually, you'll complain about you're stuck. You're in a, it's a, been a plateau, or things haven't changed or moved for months. 
So we're uh, turning over a, a new leaf right now. And what, what is that? Um, <clears throat> so many different ways to describe what the Buddha was teaching. For me, um, it's a revolutionary teaching, but it's a very quiet, bloodless one, at least it's intended to be. Uh, and it has everything to do with a change, a radical change in our relationship to everything. Um, our first and foremost, of course, our relationship to ourselves. Our relationship to objects, to nature, to money, to people, of course, etc. Anything you want to tell me. Well, doesn't everyone have a relationship to all these things? Yes. But typically, that relationship has turned on trying to get what we think is good or what has proven to be pleasant, helpful in the past, to hold on to it, to get more of it, and trying to rid ourselves of what has proven to be harmful. And we don't want to repeat it. If we have it, we're trying to rid ourselves of it. Sometimes uh, what we really like leaves all too soon. And it can be quite deep sorrow. Sometimes what we don't like lingers all too long. Uh, so what is the Buddha, what's the difference? Well, <clears throat> our practice is sometimes called the practice of liberation. I think it's a good term for it. When we hear it, uh, I have found over the years that, start, I did too at first, we tend to think of liberation as something that's way down there, way down. If we come to IMS and places like it and clock in enough s sitting time and clock in enough walking time, maybe even get a little meter on our sweatpants and keep notes. And, uh, way down the pike, I don't know, some special effect will happen and we'll be liberated. Well, there are definitely breakthroughs in practice. They come when they come. But most of it is blue-collar work. I don't know if you've noticed, those of you who've been practicing for a while, well, even those of you who are very new, it's laboring in the vineyard. It's moment by moment, falling asleep on ourselves, waking up, falling asleep, waking up. Um, so the <clears throat> what the Buddha suggested is that in those moments of grasping and pushing away, we're enslaved. If you don't like that term, uh, check the quality of consciousness when you're holding on to something tenaciously and it's following its own lawfulness and you're trying to control it and it doesn't want to be controlled. In fact, it won't be. I think Kafka said it in a gamble, a bet between you and life, put your money on life. No question about it. You'll lose. And <clears throat> we want to push away what we don't like. So it's this struggle. We argue with the mind. We argue with the facts of our life. We get angry at life. It shouldn't be happening to me. It shouldn't be happening to me now. And it is. So the Buddha was somewhere in between, on one extreme grasping, on the other extreme, you can call it greed, craving, avert, the other extreme aversion. And the root in the Buddha's teaching is ignorance. That is, we think that's the best way to live. 
That's one of the meanings. Ignorance is a very nuanced term in the Buddha's usage. I'll mention a few of its usages. Uh, and so sometimes we accumulate a lot, a lot of good things, money, sex, power, fame, and inevitably something happens to it. And it doesn't, it's not that it wasn't fulfilling, it had some degree of fulfillment, and then it doesn't last because nothing does. That doesn't mean it's not good. It's just our relationship to it has been ignorant. We don't understand the nature of what's happening to us, or we understand it, but it's merely conceptual. And so there's no transformative power. So in the other extreme is when we fight with the mind, uh, something that shouldn't be here, and it is. Uh, the Buddha's approach is somewhere in between. It's neither grasping at nor pushing away. It's becoming aware of and learning. Uh, this is a wisdom path. Everything that you, that you learn from all the different teachers and teachings uh, on a wisdom path are designed to help us learn and understand. And, it's, and understanding here goes much deeper than conceptual understanding, though of course it, it begins there, right thought. We read books, hear talks like this. These are just words. That's all they are. Uh, maybe as you're listening to them, you're agreeing with some, disagreeing with others, saying, why doesn't he get on with it? Are you listening? If you are listening to your mind, you have to listen to your mind in order to hear what's being said, because if the mind goes to Toledo, Ohio, and your body is here, you're not listening. Then you're practicing right now, and that's turning over a new leaf. We're becoming aware as to how we actually live from moment to moment, actually. It's just this, this moment, how is it? And so in those moments when we grasp and push away, uh, it's a kind of slavery, a kind of bondage. Again, if you don't like that term, examine what it's like when you're doing that. Uh, the, the consciousness feels a certain way. If you like to feel that way, full speed ahead. Keep grasping and pushing away. Keep up your struggle. Uh, in those moments when there's an allowing of what's there to be there and a clear seeing of it, and as the seeing becomes steadier and clearer and more sustained, uh, it's a different quality of consciousness altogether. And you can experience that. I hope you already have. So one, uh, what we're learning is a new way to relate to whatever you bring up, whatever you tell me. And I would say another way of putting it is uh, what the Buddha is, is suggesting in the teaching, not suggesting, strongly stating in any number of ways, is the urgency of self-discovery. It's urgent. If it isn't, then it isn't for you. My saying it isn't going to make it. If you're really new, you may not, well, what's so urgent about understanding myself? To understand what the Buddha is saying, teaching, you have to understand your own mind. You can read all the books that there are, that ever existed in every language, on what the Buddha taught. If you don't understand your mind, you won't be understanding what the Buddha meant. The books have their place. 
evenings like this with words coming at you have their place, at least potentially. But mainly, they're encouragement, pointers, in a direction. And the, a right, the, the direction is where? It's to yourself. That's the most important book to read. If these other books are getting you to do that, then you're really practicing on a wisdom path. If the other books are satisfying, and many of us who are, have education and have minds that uh, enjoy thinking, conceptual understanding, it's very satisfying when you understand something intellectually. And it's as if our job is done. You hear a good talk on what the Buddha had to say, and it's fulfilling. Not really, it's just beginning. The understanding that's being, that's being talked about, that, that I'm talking about, um, may start with words, but more and more it comes from direct experience, and it's your relationship with yourself. The whole practice can be said to be about intimacy. Enlightenment or awakening, as Dogen, a very great Japanese master, put it, when he was asked, what is awakening? He said, being intimate with all things. So when I say it's a revolution in relationship, it means being intimate. Uh, the self-discovery, what is your relationship to food? Did you find out anything as you ate lunch today? It isn't a mechanical pr uh, practice of, let's say, even with the breath. We'll get to that in a moment. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Okay, that's good. I feel better. Um, mindfulness just remembers to turn towards what's happening, whatever you've decided. In our case, we're beginning with the body and the breathing. Then what's also necessary to accompany mindfulness is a sensitivity and an alertness as to what's happening, to what we've turned to, whether it's the breath or food or a vacuum cleaner or another person when we leave here. Even now, it's, people are here. We're all here. We may not be talking to each other, but have, any, have you been affected by any of the people here? That person has two different socks on. They aren't color-coordinated. At least if they have two different socks, but they are color-coordinated. And what are they so cold? It's not that cold, for goodness sakes. That person takes too much on their plate. So in silence, we're all, the mind doesn't stop. In other words, it hears the instructions from Michael, from myself, silence. That's, that's outer silence. We're, and how do we get to inner silence? Through facing vexation in all the tumult that is in consciousness. By the way, a lot of you are, I think, are relatively new to the practice and you've been doing beautifully. You know, you've really been quiet in the hall. You're really in there giving it your best. We appreciate that. But I don't know what's going on inside your head, so to speak. Maybe it's volcanic. We'll find out more tomorrow, of course. And the lava will all be dumped on Michael and myself. <laughs> so in that moment, when there's a clear attention, without grasping or pushing away, it's a moment of liberation. It's a different. If you don't like that language, fine. But get, get to the experience of it. Take a look. Because learning gets encouraged when you realize, oh, when I live unconsciously, it's another way of putting it, a life of unawareness, which is what we've been doing, and not learning very much. We've learned a lot in the technological a, uh, realm. 
we've learned a lot. We have a lot, accumulated a lot of knowledge. Our science and technology is absolutely stunning and brilliant. But we haven't learned much about ourselves. That must be painfully obvious to everyone here. And the gap between those two keeps growing. Albert Einstein was, was once asked, uh, once said, he said, um, he was asked about infinity. And he said, well, there are only two things that are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. Uh, the practice is about those two. Because uh, if you feel insulted, I apologize. But I, I'll start with myself. Um, because as we explore the way we live, you may find that some of the ways in which you live really don't work. They were called in Dharma circles unskillful. They produce suffering for you and for the people in your life. And wisdom is turning that around so that our, the way we think and feel and the way we act verbally and physically starts to become skillful, where what we do is beneficial for, those, for ourselves and for those in our life. That's central, runs through the Buddhist teaching, living skillfully and unskillfully. It's sometimes translated as wholesome and un unwholesome. I prefer skillful and unskillful. It's up to you. Sometimes there is a big breakthrough, a big chunk of freedom, some w something that's been holding you back for a long time. Suddenly there's a clear seeing of it and, it, and it's gone. You're never to be visited again. I would say when the understanding is bone deep, there are different levels of seeing and understanding. What we're doing in the first stage of our practice, focusing on the body, on breathing, and coming back to that again and again. That's going through the palace with the oil on our head, but then not, perhaps, don't overextend the metaphor. It's, of course, limited. Well, the story. Uh, but then we don't really know much about what's going on because we're so concerned with being concentrated. Um, I think it's the early stages of senility. Who can help me where I'm, where did I leave off? I think I need my own words to get me back on track. Well, there we go. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of satisfying understanding is conceptual very satisfying. Uh, often in interviews, people come back and say they really understand what is meant by craving, attachment, suffering, the Four Noble Truths, and so forth. And it's very helpful, and it's inspiring, and it, and it, get, it mobilizes energy and confidence, conviction, and you're practicing. But it's relatively surface understanding. Uh, bone deep is what it sounds like where as the, as the mind becomes more sensitive and clear, and that we're trying to help that mind develop, we're trying to uh, bring that into existence to help re-educate, uh, re reshape the mind so that it's clear and serviceable and effective and fit to do the hard work of looking at what we don't want to look at. Um, actually, someone asked me, um, 
a few weeks ago at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center when I used this term bone deep. It says a lot to me. I said, did that, wh where's that from? What, uh, what teacher? What, uh, tri is it, it, does that come from any Ajahn? That's the Thai foresters. No. He said, did it come from a Roshi? No. Did it come from a Rinpoche? No. Where did it come from? It came from Robert Duval in a cowboy movie. And I just nearly knocked me over. And he said, yeah, I know that one over a campfire. I know it bone deep. And I felt like cowboy wisdom. Whoa. I like it. But I would. I like cowboy films. You know, how much of this Dharma stuff can you take? Okay. Okay, so let's, what have we been doing? Is there any learning going on? Uh, let's start very, very simply. We're taking a look at our relationship to the breath. We're taking a look at our relationship to the body. It's a kind of learning that it's at least potentially there. It's not a mechanical process. Uh, sometimes techniques imply that uh, or a misuse of them uh, is more, more to the point. Uh, it's maintaining a sensitivity as we're with the body breathing. And for most of us, we haven't done that. You know, we know a bit about our body. Maybe we know a lot about the body, especially if we know anatomy, physiology. Or when we're hurting, we can report that. But we're staying with the body, and we're getting to know it. And in the Buddhist teaching, the first foundation of mindfulness, there are four of them, the first foundation is the body in the body, intimate understanding of the body. That means it's the body in and of itself. It, there's no idea in it. There's no image of it. No, it's not a body image. That's mental. It's just the raw, naked, bodily stuff, sensations. And so we're coming back to it again and again. As we do that, we can become much more sensitive to bodily life. Uh, I have a chiropractor. I send him some of the yogis from... Cambridge to him sometimes, and it's not that he needs so much business, but he, he thanked me, and I said, why? He said, well, the people who are practicing Vipassana, when I ask them questions about their body, they can really answer it. He said, sometimes they go on a bit. So as you're becoming more familiar, you're developing more, you're becoming acquainted with your body in a different way. Not the idea of the body, just the raw nakedness of it, and of course we're emphasizing breath, the light, breath sensations as a, an integral part of bodily life. And as we take a look, uh, something happens. Now, the Buddha's teaching is not a teaching, uh, there is room for faith in the Buddha's teaching, but it's provisional. It's not blind faith. It's not, if you believe in uh, emptiness, you're, all, you're, all, you're okay, you're a Buddhist. That's a belief system. The belief is uh, it's provisional in that it helps us mobilize some energy so that we can set the practice in motion and find out if the teachings are true. The Buddha constantly encouraged the yogis around him to test the teachings, and I would do the same to you. It's very important. For example, um, you've probably read and heard a million times that Breath awareness brings a certain calm, a certain joy. Has it? 
Sometimes, yeah, okay. So then you start, there's a little bit of confidence in it that maybe this indeed is true. Okay. Uh, sometimes uh, you'll hear it said that as the breath calms down, in other words, as there's more continuity, uh, the mind calms down and also the body starts to relax. They're interrelated. The breath is a powerful conditioner of both the body and the mind. And of course, they're all conditioning each other. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? Two for two, good. (laughs) And so uh, we start to learn. Other things that people learn, even though it's not officially a wisdom practice right now, what we're doing is technically shamatha, concentration. You may find, as many people have, that as their mind gets distracted from from the breathing, that... uh, for one person, it tends to go into the future a lot, making up some future. Because the, it's the, there is no future. There's only now. It's all there's ever going to be. It's all there ever was. Is that so, have you gotten that yet? It's very important. That's why so much fuss is being made about now. Power of now, be here now, the wisdom of now, now speaking. It's a cottage industry, this now stuff. <laughs> We're in the now business, Michael and I. So one person, in the process of learning how to steady the mind on one realm, one meditation theme, the, the, breathing, the body breathing, they discover that they weren't looking for it. Suddenly, they're away and they're gone. They're away and they're gone. And some people, that predominantly, their mind seems to want to leave, to escape from what's going on right here and right now, and to make up a future that's each, either nightmarish or wonderful. Then other people discover that when I depart from the breathing, I seem to get sucked into some past memory that's typically either wonderful or horrible. And they start to see that. Sometimes that's a hint that connects to something in daily life. Why is that so powerful? Why is that recurrent again and again? And so without even trying, you learn something about yourself. You discover something about yourself that maybe there's something that needs to be looked at carefully that you're not doing in life or that you're doing and it needs to stop or some old wound that we keep picking at but not taking care of. So sometimes a bit of wisdom comes in the, in the midst as a byproduct unintentionally. So these are, it's not, when you teach, these are nice, neat categories. But life is much messier than any of the teachings, any of the four this or the eight that or the sixteen this, much messier and bigger. Have you seen that yet? These schemas are helpful, but at, but at a certain point you realize this is life and it's quite something. Um, so as we are with the breathing, we're being introduced to a new way to relate to the breathing. First of all, it may be that you never saw any value in the breath at all. You know, if you get the wind knocked out of you, or if you get a cold, or you have sinusitis, you're very interested in the breath. But other than that, as long as you're breathing, and it isn't afflicted in some way, just go about your life. And here we're saying, wait a minute, uh, pay attention to the quality of breathing, to what's happening as you breathe. Uh, which is another way of saying, notice that you're alive. 
do you know you're alive? I forget sometimes. And when I wake up and I realize, wow, I'm alive, it's great. Even when, I, even when what I'm alive to is horrible. Okay, the new people, that may sound crazy, but you'll figure it out. Okay, so one of the things we see is the mind's tendency to not be with what is. After all, each in-breath and each out-breath happens right now. When else can it happen? So that we're learning how to be in the present moment. We've started with a very simple but profound aspect of, of life, breathing. It's not trivial, as you know. Okay. And in meeting a breath just as it happens and staying, learning how to stay with it, in this case in the context of the whole body, uh, you're practicing being in the present moment. And to begin with, the mind is quite wild, and you see that it really prefers to be elsewhere. It has a mind of its own. It doesn't care what the instructions say. It wants to be here, there, and anywhere but here. So sometimes we see that, hmm, this is more than just a breath. It seems like we prefer non-fact to fact, because the, f the fact is this is what's happening right now. I'm breathing. And yet the mind prefers to make up something or grasp something from the past. Uh, there was a research study that I read some years ago with some amusement and also um, I know it's true. Uh, they, it was done in Hollywood. They studied uh, a few hundred films and they wanted to find out what is the main, what's the main theme, that the most frequently used lines or themes. And they found it was, let's get out of here. <laughs> you know, d different ways of putting that. Get it? So what practice is about is the mind's natural bent is let's get out of here. I'd rather be anywhere but intimately, directly, simply enter into communion with my experience as it is, period. I'd rather think about it and embroider it with ideas. I'd rather make up some fanciful future that's horrible or wonderful. I'd rather dip into the past and relive it. And our job is really is to learn how to not turn away from the facts of what's happening right here and right now. It's a simple idea, and I think it's a sensible one, because that's where life is lived in the present moment. It's here now. And, and we keep moving from here now to here now to here now. And we see the mind's preference. So you can begin to, there's wisdom already as we begin to see what, we're, what our life is about. And we're, we're learning how to unlearn certain unskillful ways of living. Now, if preferring an imaginary future and dwelling in the past was so great, none of us would be here because we know how to do that. So apparently it's another skill we're trying to learn, a new relationship to experience. And that new relationship is to open up to it, to enter into direct contact with it. I would, I'm going to use a strong word, enter into communion with it. I'm not an ex-Catholic, but I, you know, it's, no, Michael, I don't mean, no laughs. Not, <laughs> I thought at least you'd laugh. Okay, did I tread on someone's toes? Sorry. Intimate. Um, we're learning about that, and we start to see 
if you do, that this is really a better way to live. And it's a complete re-education. That's what I meant. It's turning over a new leaf, starting now. It's preferring to live in awareness rather than unawareness. And in the time that I have remaining, um, I want to extend this into give you an overview of where we're going with this practice. Uh, you can see where it's leading as we're calming the mind. It's the first day, and we only have five days. It's not a lot, but it's enough to give you a taste of something. Um, at a certain point, we're going to be emphasizing more and more. Not only move through the palace, don't spill any oil, but let me know what's going on. Now, the palace that you'll be walking through is your own heart. You're trying to, you're now not just getting concentrated, which is very useful, invaluable, inspiring. When you get very concentrated, it brings a lot of joy and all kinds of healing goes on in the peace of being concentrated. But you still can't tell the king who's having an affair with who, who's trying to, who's plotting to overtake the crown. Take, you can't, you, we don't know that, but only now it's all, it's all in here. In other words, it's self-understanding, self-discovery. And as you understand yourself, that's where the liberation comes from. The emphasis in Dharma practice is not on judging, it's on understanding. Understanding begins conceptually, but it doesn't end there. There's a kind of learning that goes much deeper, and that's the learning that liberates us. Now, the model of practice that Michael and I are putting forward does not end on the cushion or the bench or the chair, whatever your sitting arrangement is. Formal practice, as you, we're doing lots of it here, and our agreement to form a temporary community for five days and to help each other by being silent with each other and support each other that way, that is precious and useful. But even on a retreat, there's a daily life. Sometimes it sounds as if there isn't. Don't you have to take care of the, don't we eat? We go to the toilet, we dress, we undress, we wash. We're affected by people even if we're not talking. We like this, we don't like that, we agree with this teaching, we hate that, etc. So life goes on. And what we're saying, and this is of course the second assignment the king gave this aspiring yogi, is that meditation is not just a bag of techniques and methods, it's a way of life. It's a way of life that puts a premium on paying attention. In other words, looking and listening, both externally and internally, and learning. Learning from what we see and hear. And uh, if you s to me, there's a beauty in it. It's a process that's ongoing. I see it as, as for the rest of my life. Uh, if you, for example, if you think that at a certain point you have no more problems, maybe, but all of us are going to die. And as one Zen master put it, someone was asked, well, how does a Zen master die? And he said, I don't know. I haven't died yet. They have the best lines, don't they? <laughs> so in the remainder of the retreat, we're going to be encouraging you to 
um, for example, whatever your yogi job is, and if you got a, did anyone get a job when you first found out your job is cleaning the toilet? There was inside you weren't thrilled. Anyone? You don't have to show your hand if you'd rather not. But over the years, uh, here's what I'm trying to say. If you got a job that you don't like and there's a resistance, wonderful. Because that toilet is your teacher. It can teach you much more than, than we can, and even more than the Buddha can. Because it's pushing your buttons and it's showing you where you're not free. And if you think that sitting in the hall is very spiritual, but chopping potatoes isn't, that's one model, sacred and profane. To me, it's not the deepest model. In fact, I would make a stronger statement. It's erroneous. There's just life, and they, uh, a deep practice is when um, it's, under, it's not fragmented that way. It's not uh, uh, dichotomized that way. That is, life is what's holy. And coming together in places that are officially holy, those are conventions. This is a stage set. A monastery is not necessarily holy, no matter how much you say it is. It depends on if and what goes on there. And finally, the test is, what happens to you? For example, I went on the, um, the a pilgrimage, the holy places of the Buddha in India. And the first few, I was with a group of people, and everyone was ooing and aahing. And I just felt like, I guess I'm just born cynical or something. I just don't. You know, and here's where the Buddha, that, uh, and I was just, you know, okay. I see trees and a few rocks, and okay. In a few places, I don't know why, I did get inspired. Uh, and then I, I checked it in some cases because I had read in a lot of suttas and they took place there. And in some places it felt like it was authentic and I couldn't explain it, and that's fine with me. But at the end of the pilgrimage, what I concluded was the real value of the outer pilgrimage, the Buddha was born here, the Buddha attained this here, the Buddha died here, and so forth, um, is if that outer pilgrimage, or you, you learning about it, leads to the real pilgrimage, which is inner, a pilgrimage, into, a voyage into yourself, and for you to liberate yourself. I think that's what the Buddha was saying. He says it over and over again. He's not a god. He's not an avatar. He's saying, I'm awake. Please join me. It, you can be awake. One of the meanings of ignorance is we're ignorant of our full potential. Another meaning of ignorance is that we're in ignorant of the, of the skills that are needed to live wisely and with kindness. And so this is why we're here. We're developing these skills. And uh, spending some time together like this in silence, formal sitting, honoring it, is precious and invaluable. But please. Bring whatever the attitude is in here that you think perhaps you're uh, committed to doing the schedule. But don't see eating or washing up as inferior. Because uh, what the thread that runs through all the different content that makes up a day is your life. Whatever you encounter, that's your life in that moment. And that's all we have. We have our life right here, right now, and it's always been that way, it's always going to be that way. And watch how the mind spins out stories. The main story is, it makes a story about who it is to itself.
constantly telling itself who it used to be, who it is, thinks it is now, and who it will be if it does this meditation, sits enough. And the real pilgrimage is seeing that, going through it, and the promise, what the Buddha is saying, is there's very, very rich soil in each one of us, but you got to dig. The digging isn't muscular. The digging is gentle, subtle, and it's awareness through watching everything arise and pass away. Of course, that's we're going to get to that in the remainder of the retreat pretty soon, and that's going through the other rooms in the palace. Okay, can we have a few moments of silence? May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Let's do some meditation as we walk, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.